Uh, it's seriously, it's so good to see everybody. Um, some people have been in Puerto Rico. Welcome back, my goodness. The halls were living off in the terribleness of tropical life. Seriously, welcome back. I just happened to see you. <laughs> but it's good to have everybody here. If you're someone that's new here to Cornerstone, um, we're seriously glad you're here. Our, our hope is, is that you do encounter a group of people that have been transformed by Jesus and that that in some way compels you to want to know who Jesus is, that in some way you too would understand that Jesus Christ, when he came, he had a greater intention than uh, merely rescuing us for hell. He had, a, he had a huge intention of preparing us for a life to come. And so anyways, it's really great having y'all here. If you need a Bible this morning, there's going to be some people walking down uh, that you can get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, we'd love for you to be able to take that and, uh, and just use it uh, for, for yourself. And so this is where we are. We've been in the book of Matthew, and we've been looking at this idea of apprenticing with Jesus. That ultimately what we're trying to do is to help everyone that calls Cornerstone home to learn what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples like Jesus instituted when he, when he left. And we, we see that like in Matthew 28 and 16 through 20. But in this, the rest of Matthew kind of lays out what does it look like then to follow Jesus. And he gives us example after example after example of what it looks like. And last week, when, when Dan was up here throwing hands around and feet around and eyeballs around, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, that means you weren't here, and then you got to watch it online. But I thought in a really cool way, he helped us see the point of where Jesus was, is in order to enter his kingdom, in order to be one of his followers, you got to become like a kiddo. Now, that seems so strange to people because we think that in order to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to grow up. Well, no, growing up happens after Jesus rescues us. But we come to him with absolute dependence. We come with him with an expectation that we are desperate for him. And that's what I hope for those of you that maybe don't know Jesus that are here today is that you will see that, that coming to Jesus, it is worth it. But you can only come to him as like a child with humility, with dependence, with an expectation that you can't rescue yourself. Only Jesus can rescue you. But then after Jesus rescues you, is this beautiful expectation that he's not going to leave you where you are. He's going to change you. In fact, all throughout the book of Matthew, he says, I'm going after that heart of yours. Because I believe I get that heart. And I get in there and I start to change your heart. I'm not talking the physical heart. That, that innermost part of who we are, that transformation of who we are, we will never be the same people again. But that won't be sometimes without pain. In October of 1999, I'll try to do this without choking up here. I thought it was going to be okay. I got a note on my car from my father saying, we need to talk. The reason I remember it was October of 1999 is because the Steelers were playing. It was Monday night football, and if I remember correctly, they were playing someone like the Atlanta Falcons, so I knew my team was going to win. <laughs> well, anytime you get a note like that from your dad, you go over so I showed up and I had the note and I said, what's going on? And he just kind of was quiet for a little bit and he goes, I wanted you to know I'm leaving your mom. Sat there for a second. It was like, okay. And I was trying to understand where it was coming from and he listed out some reasons that eventually we came to know that weren't true. But ultimately what was going on in his life is he is a man that from the time he was a teenager until he was in his 50s was having an affair after an affair after an affair with different women. 
maybe not physically all the time, but he just had this predisposition inside of him. And through that process, I'll never forget this, it was probably the first time I'd ever seen this thing called church discipline. Now, on some levels, some people hear that word and it sounds maybe cold and hard and maybe you had a bad experience with it or maybe some of you, especially those of you who are not followers of Jesus, you're wondering, what in the world is church discipline? But I think ultimately who the church is supposed to be is we are supposed to be the most loving group of people on this planet, but God calls us to be holy, distinct, set apart, in fact, in the book of Matthew, he calls us to be this group of people that shine like a light on the hill. We're called to be a people that understand we're not perfect because we're not. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, let me tell you this. You are not coming into a group of perfect people. We just acknowledge that we aren't. We acknowledge our desperation, our need for Jesus. We acknowledge that we're kiddos in need for him. But in some ways, as we talk through that idea, and this is where Dan kind of walked it through, that's not my notes. Can you put it on slide three? Is there anybody back there? I can't see. Slide three. Slide three. If you don't have it, I'll just keep going. But he talked about this idea that we are like kids. The Bible intends that we be protected by children. But here's the other part. We're cared for like kids. See, the thing about kids is, and if you look at it, especially like in, in uh, let me fast forward here just a little bit, in 10 through 14, is that kids, kind of like sheep, we tend to wander, don't we? I remember when I was first parenting, and I don't know how many of you remember the first time you lost a child, but do you remember the first time you realized toddlers tend to wander? And I remember we lost our kiddo, and all I could do was frantically go screaming out in the street, Josiah, where are you? Because toddlers wander. Well, little did I know, he had climbed up the back of a motorhome and he'd gone up this ladder at like a year and a half old and he was sitting on top with his feet hanging over the motorhome and he goes, hi, daddy. <laughs> because toddlers wander. See, the thing that Jesus knew about his followers is, is we were going to have a predisposition or a tendency to wander. And so when we do wander, what are we supposed to do? In the case of my dad, who claimed to be a follower of Jesus, he was wandering. And the question then is, is what is the church supposed to do? How is this church supposed to walk alongside? Are we supposed to just say, hey, you know, it happens. Sorry to be, you know, that, that. Or are we supposed to come down hard and shun people? Like, what are we supposed to do in that? And I remember an old pastor who was just a friend of mine. He walked up. His name was Don Knotts, and it's not the Don Knotts you're thinking. <laughs> but he walked up, and I remember him grabbing my, my shoulders and him saying this, Todd, this is about ready to be extremely hard, but trust the process. By faith, enter the process. Now, in the passage that we're going to look at today, it's going to give these different things that are going to be happening. And so I kind of want to give you an overview of it. And especially for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, I want you to see this at the end of it. Because I want you to know that this group of people, I think, is so distinct and different from the world because of the teachings of Jesus. 
But in this particular passage, he's going to write to us and help us understand what do we do now when we are dealing with a wayward child, one who's gone off maybe into sin, what is it that we're supposed to do? How are we supposed to go after him? And my hope is if you've got a negative view of church this one, you're going to get a positive view of it. And even if you don't know Jesus, my hope is, is that you'll see that we as a church, we are so passionate about Jesus and following Jesus and, and being a distinct group of people that you might see within this a desire that is built and cultivated within you to come to Jesus because of our desire to be this way. But in this passage, we got to answer the question in this way, who are the people in this passage? So that's the first thing we're going to look at. Okay, now here's the thing. Those of you that know me know I don't, I don't always do this, but I'm going to alliterate my entire message. If you don't know what alliterate is, look at the first, the people. Everything's going to start with a P. So I want you to remember this, all right? Now, here's the question we're going to ask of these wayward children. Who, and let's look at the people that are involved. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can look down there in verse 14, or you can look up on the screen that the people that are involved in this is one end, it's the little ones that were talked about. That's what last week that, that Dan talked about. But more specifically, when you look up a little bit higher, it is one at the very end of verse 12 that has gone astray. So what are we supposed to do when someone, and this is the key, that has gone astray? That's one of our people. In fact, in verse 15, the passage that we're going to be in today, it talks about if your brother. So this is a family matter. This happens internally. This is something that's supposed to happen amongst us as a spiritual family. In fact, I think the church spends way too much time telling the world how they're supposed to operate. And we should spend way more time working internally to help each other to operate in the way God tells us to operate. In fact, I think that's the point of 1 Corinthians 5. But the first one we're talking about here is this brotherhood, this spiritual family. One of them has gone astray. That's the first person. Now, the second person, if you look down there, is your, you, 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 your, you, you, you. Do you get the point? <laughs> Who's the second person? You. In fact, the you here is actually in the singular. It's not y'all. It's you. So many people, when they talk about somebody going wayward, they usually come up and go, you know, did you realize that Jim Bob has gone wayward? And I'll look back at them and say, well, what are you going to do? Well, no, I think you're the one that should go do it. No, actually, in this passage, it's you, the one who sees it. So the you in this, in this particular case, is not a pastor elder, it's not a deacon, it's not a committee of people to go after people. In fact, the whole church now, it becomes the you's, what we're talking about. The second one that we see, or the third people group of people that we see here, the one or two others, or the two or three witnesses, this group of people that we're supposed to go get. And again, it doesn't have to be elders and pastors, but it's a small group is the other thing that we're going to see here. And the final group of people is just the church. So let me repeat those. The first one is the wayward brother. The second one is? The third one is? Not the church yet. The two or three others. The last one is? The church. That's the Who? If someone goes way, wayward, those are the key people we need to understand. Now, the second thing is, is more of a what. Who is the people? What is the problem? Well, what's the problem? Verse 12, somebody has gone astray. And when we talk about this word astray, you're going to see it kind of explained more in verse 15. It's this idea that somebody sins. 
It's somebody that has sin from the standpoint is, is that they've gone in a way contrary to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the idea is, is not just that they go there one time or twice maybe. We all have a predisposition to stumble. The idea is more habitual. We keep going there and going there and going there and going there to the point where there begins to become a distance between that person and God, that person and the church. The problem is, is they've wandered off. Another time, one of my kiddos, we were trying to find him and another friend, and I'll, I'll never forget this. They were, they were hiding is what they were doing, and they thought it would be funny to hide from mom and dad on Halloween night. <laughs> my wife comes back to me, and she says, we can't find this child. And I said, well, that child has to be around here somewhere. So we start screaming his name and screaming his name. It wasn't Josiah. And start screaming his name. <laughs> But the thing about it is, if you look down in verses 15 through 17, that child of mine refused to listen. And then that child of mine met daddy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just this idea of someone that refuses to listen and refuses to listen. They have this 1 John 3, 9 practice of sinning within them. It's habitual. It's not just they stumble. They just kind of stray off. It's not like our family. It's not how God's people are supposed to operate. It's not what he, God intends for his people to be holy and to show off Jesus. So that's kind of the, the problem that we have. Now, what's the purpose of going after him? Well, the purpose in all of it is when you look down in verse 12, this one who's gone astray, we're going to leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray. Verse 13, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. Verse 14, it's not the will of my Father in heaven that any one of these should perish. Even when you get to like chapter 15 and Luke kind of following along these lines, is this lady going after her coin, meaning this person that's a brother that's gone astray is a treasure to God. And what he wants his people to do is, is to go after that stray because that stray is someone special. In other words, what are they going to do? Verse 16 or 15 at the end of it? Restoration. We're trying to restore the brother. Or the other thing that we're going to find when we get to the end of it, we're going to establish whether or not this person really even wants to follow Jesus. But I think the key component of it is the purpose is restoration. Now, especially for those of you that may have grown up in a religious background in which you've seen this type of a thing and you've seen shunning. Shunning is not the goal of church discipline. The goal is to recklessly almost go after that person. See, when my kiddo was playing hide-and-seek with me with another kid, and we start screaming, pretty soon, my, it wasn't just me screaming, it was my wife screaming, it was the kids, other kids' parents screaming. Pretty soon we had the whole neighborhood. In fact, some people went and blocked off the exits to our neighborhood. People are screaming all around, you know, for this particular child of mine, where are you, where are you? And the idea is, is that we want to restore that one back into the family. It's a desperate plea to come back. That's the problem. But in this now, and this is what I mean when I said Don Knotts said it was a process, is that the how we do it is a process. And here's what I want you to hear today. There's a process where we go after people that have strayed, that is so important, that we're not supposed to deviate from, that we're to by faith approach it in the way that God's called us to approach it. 
And in fact, the way that it's put in this process is this series of ifs. It's kind of like this idea of a hypothetical decision-making tree that we're supposed to, if this, then this, if this, then this is kind of the idea. And he gives us a way in which we go after people. Now, here's what I would say to you that aren't followers of Jesus. No other group of people out there have a way to go after people like I believe Scripture tells us to go after people that are lost. I think most ways within our culture, what it is, it's like if they want to go, let them go. Stinks to be them. I think it's because we don't see people as precious as God sees people. This process is put in place because, like I said, the individual is a treasure. And we're not to quit. Now, the first part of this that you're going to see in Matthew 8, 15 through 17, if you've got your Bible, is the fact that the brothers sins. Remember, again, it's habitual sin. So what are we supposed to do by faith if our brother or our sister sins? Here's the first thing. If this one sins, and it could be against you, that's why I have it in those little braces, but just sins in general, go and tell him his fault, and I love this idea, between you and him alone. I love that. Go to this person alone, keep it small, but you need to confront them. You need to put them at the fork in the road. Now, it could be it's an obvious reality of sin that we've seen, or maybe it's just a question where you're going to somebody and going, gosh, it just seems like you're not living in line with Jesus. Can you help me understand what's going on so that I can walk with you? But the idea is, is to reveal sin to the wanderer and call them to come back into the fold. But I think the other part of this passage of being alone is, is that I think the church creates a safe place to fail. I think the reason that Jesus is talking about this is the church of any place on the planet should be a place in which people understand that failure is normative because we're human. And that's why we need each other to help us to walk into what God calls us to. It's that brotherhood that's a part of. Now, deep within us many times, though, if you're honest with yourself, you don't want to be the one that goes with it. I remember Don, when, I, when it kind of we were dealing with some of those different issues, he looked back at me and he said, well, you were the one that found out about your dad. That means you need to go talk to him. I thought, yeah, but I don't know if I can. And he grabbed my shoulders again and he said, Todd, do you trust the process? You're the one that saw it, you. You're the one that needs to go talk to him. I went home that day completely unsure what I was going to do, and I remember looking at this particular passage, and I began to ask myself the question, what happens if I don't confront? What if I don't go? What if I just send somebody else? Lisa, what are you doing today? Why don't you go talk to him? But the longer and the longer that I looked at it, you can't get by that little idea of go, meaning you need to. Because to not go is actually sin. And I think this becomes so important just in our day in and day out lives because I think this is oftentimes where it's supposed to start. 
we just see people that are in sin and, and, and when it's this habitual sin and we love them and care for them enough to say, even though it's going to be uncomfortable, even though I might lose you, friend, I want to go and talk to you because I don't want you going out of this path. I don't want you living outside of the ways of Jesus. We're trying to be a church that shows the world that we're seeking to deal with hypocrisy. We're trying to shine like that light on the hill. Can I walk with you through it? Can I, can I call you back into the fold? Can I call you to repent and go the other way? Because see, in it, when we talk about that, there's always the hope that you might win your brother back. Well, all night long, that night before I went to go confront my dad, my wife wasn't in town. She had left me all alone for some reason because she didn't understand the weight of it. I'm still going through counseling because of it. <laughs> and I just sat at the church I was at in the gym, and I just remember slamming the ball against the wall. And I stayed up all night. Praying, begging God, God, would you change him? Have you ever noticed, though, that sometimes God is not necessarily looking to change them right away, but you? I remember as I sat there just going, Todd, you've got your own junk you need to deal with. It's a truism, right, in, in Matthew 7, that before we go confront our brother, we're supposed to take the log out of our eye. And all night long, as I just slammed that ball against the wall and shot hoops over and over and over again, I was dealing not only with myself, but begging God, God, would you allow me to talk to my dad? Would you allow me to lay out what I'm supposed to lay out? And I remember showing up out at my grandparents' place, which is about an hour away, early in the morning. My dad was out working, and I just went up to him, and I said, Dad, we've got to talk. Now, in some ways, if I'm really honest with you, I think I was more scared and desperate I don't know if I was really thinking about him as much as I was thinking about myself at the time. But I was just pleading him to come back. Now, in my perfect world, what would have happened is he would have listened to me. But you know this. Anybody that's ever had to go confront people, many times they don't listen the first time. And I remember him looking back at me and said, Todd, I appreciate what you're trying to do but I think God just wants me to be happy. I remember later thinking, I wish I would have looked at him and said, God wants you more than happy. He also wants you holy. I left. I remember just being absolutely devastated because at the end of the day, restoration didn't take place. There was just a heaviness. I went and talked to that Guy, Don Knotts, we were having breakfast at this eatery, and I just told him what happened. And again, I remember him looking across the table at me going, Todd, do you trust the process? I remember going back to two or three others because that's the next thing that's supposed to happen. If he does not listen, look at that in verse 16. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's based out of Deuteronomy 19 where it's the smallest number that you were to have to confirm the validity of what was going on there, the, the, the reality of a crime that had been committed. In other words, Jesus is saying if crimes are supposed to be that way, well, that means going to your brother should also have an evidence to it. Do you understand? Have people gone and reached out? Because I, here's what I mean about it is we're going to and we're seeking to validate was that person actually in sin? Have they wandered? We're... We're trying to understand what's going on, but also we're trying to understand what's going on inside of us. There's a, a process that takes place to lead us along. We're seeking to come after that person from the standpoint that I just have always seen this. When there's more voices, oftentimes there's more pressure. 
Instead of just one person crying for you to come back, there's two or three others saying, please, please, please come back. Now again, in my little perfect world, my dad would have fallen on his knees in front of me. They would have been in the background. Oh, I would have spread my arms out in front of him, right? I mean, that, those are the things you envision in your mind. And I remember when we were done talking to him, he didn't say anything. He just turned and walked away. I remember sitting with those two other guys that I went with, crying my eyeballs out because I wanted more than anything to see restoration at the end of it. That's what we're after. We want to see that person brought back. We want to see that person come in line with the goodness of Jesus. I remember going to meet with Don Knotts again. So we sat across from each other. I was like, the first one didn't go well. The second one didn't well. And guess what he said to me? Trust the process. I remember going back with the elders of the church that we were a part of. And if you've never seen what goes on inside of dealing with elders as they pray for people, I just remember us weeping over my dad. Gosh, I can still see their faces in front of me. Seeing what my dad had been and what he could be. Looking across at each other just going, oh, we know what we need to do next. And in the process, the thing that Jesus tells them to do is that if he doesn't listen, will you tell it to the church? Now, at that time, the church just meant an assembly. It was used oftentimes with, with synagogues that were out in these different towns. The group of people that would meet to worship at the synagogue was called the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, the set-apart ones. You're supposed to tell it to them. Why? I think there's two reasons. One is, again, I just think it's the, the more voices crying out to that person, right? It was like in my neighborhood that night on Halloween. There's voice after voice after voice. And still that wayward child of mine didn't listen, right? But just voices crying out to come back, to repent, to leave your sin, to be holy, to be set apart in that way. Seeking to establish it in that. I remember we told it to the church and so many people reached out to him and loved on him. But at the end of the day, we find out they refused to listen to even the church. I remember after telling the church that he refused and everybody kind of talking about him not responding in that way. There's one final step that it talks about. And I remember meeting with Don and him just saying to me again, Todd, trust the process. Just trust the process. The next aspect of the process is, is to consider him, and the way that it talks about it here, a Gentile or a tax collector. What does that mean? What it means is, is to tell somebody, look, if that's the lifestyle you want to live, Go live it. Go after it. I remember I was the one that was supposed to take the letter to my dad that day, just saying, look, if, if you want your sin, you can go get it. And I just remember having that letter, and I remember handing it off to him, and, and I remember some of the things he said to me that were so hurtful that day. But I remember thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, does he understand what he's done? 
See, even Matthew talking about this idea of a tax collector, it wasn't just that we were to treat them like a Gentile. In other words, go, go get the things that this world says are so important, but a tax collector. Matthew wrote this particular letter. Matthew was a what? A tax collector. In other words, go back to then what you were before. If that's what you want, go get it. That is so hard. Because on another level, in 1 Corinthians 5, we know that to do that is to actually turn somebody over to Satan. It's to actually say to the most powerfully created being, we're turning this one over to you as we pray to God, turning him over to Satan, but for a purpose. That his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I want you to go through this process. I want you to do this particular thing because I have a plan. And I remember going back to talk to Don and I told him what everything was going on and I remember him saying to me, Todd, trust the process. But that was my dad. I say this because on one end, this whole process can seem so sterile, can't it? Well, if A, then B, if C, then D, if G, then you know, we can just go through this process. But these are real people. I remember then Don opening up the Bible and taking me to Luke 15. And he just read this passage to me. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out of one of the citizens, to, uh, of, one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he rose and came to his father. And while there was still a long way off, I love this, his father saw him, felt compassion, lifted up his robe, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his found and they began to celebrate and I remember Don looking at me and saying it's time for your dad to eat pods with the pigs do you trust the process I looked back at him and I remember saying I don't know he said be careful to shield people from the pains of life that cause repentance Now, in my head, this was going to take about a week. Handed the letter off to him and left. Two weeks went by. A month went by. A year went by. 18 years went by. But I still had in the back of my hand, oh, God, restore him. 
Restore my dad. Now again, I think when some people see this, they see just this. Just do this. It seems so cold. It seems so hard. But at the very standard of it is restoration. If I'm to be honest with you, what I learned out of that process is, is that I didn't love my dad as much as I thought I loved him. See, true loving people want what's best for him. And what was best for my dad was not to go down all of these paths of relationship with the next woman and the next woman. What was best for him was to come before this great father who would run to him and throw his arms around him and kiss him on the neck and bring him back in and kill the fatted calf. That's what was best for my father, that my dad might grow to be the man that God intends him to be. But my dad was off in a far off land. And we waited. Now in that waiting though, here's the thing I think you need to understand is that not only is the who people and the what the problem and the why the purpose and the how the process, but I want you to see the power of this. In verse 18, if you got your Bibles, you can look down there. He says this statement, truly I say to you. In other words, it's weighty, truly. He's going to kind of repeat himself down again in verse 19. Again, I say to you, it's solemn. I want you to understand this. There is a hope to go through this process. Stay in it is the way Jesus is saying. Why? Verse 18, because whatever you bind on earth, the word should, it says shall be bound in heaven, but actually the word should be shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The idea is, is you can trust that if you go through this process where you confront this one and take two or three others and tell it to the church and even hand this one over to Satan, you can promise that the way God sees it in heaven, you're going to begin to see it on earth. What he sees about this person is going to become evident and real. If they don't repent, God sees it but now you're going to see it. Just walk through the process. To bind and loose has to do with this idea of seeing right and wrong, of determining what is evil or good, right and wrong, that kind of a way. You'll be able to see it is the point. In fact, when he gets down to verse 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything, in other words, when you come before him and look at that word ask, if you seek me and come after me, if you and this group of people that are loving him come after it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. It's, it's not talking about a prayer meeting. It's talking about the Lord's discipline through prayer. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered, I always hear people say this whenever they're praying. It's not talking about a prayer meeting. It's talking about church discipline. God's already there, by the way, just so you know, when you start to pray. He was there before you got there. But in my name, if you come to me in my name and seek me and seek my will, it's the prayer of, of, of the Lord's prayer, right? This idea, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, help us to see this, that we might be there with him. And the promise, verse 20, is, is there I am among you. I'm with you. Just walk through the process. In that process, I will be with you. It's the Matthew 28, 20. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I've got you. Just trust me. I think there's another side of it is as though when. Over the 18, 19 years that I began to just wait for my dad, I heard person after person walk up to me and say, you know what, I kind of knew some stuff about your dad, but I didn't go do anything. 
I knew that your dad kind of was the way he treated, you know, women in that kind of a way, the way he did different things. Man, I, and here was the word I always heard people say, I wish I would have gone and talked to him. When you see habitual sin, see that little word go? Don't go later. Now. Go now. Why? Because the thing we learn in like James 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, you're going to save him from sinning and him then causing others to sin and this huge giant mess happening. Over that 18, 19 years, I started to realize we could have stopped the process a long time ago. But have you ever found we just wait? It'll get better, it'll get better. And Jesus says, don't wait, go. Well, about five years ago, about two years before my dad passed away, we were out at my sister's house for a wedding. And my dad asked me, can we go for a walk? And I'll be honest with him, like, oh, okay, let's go for a walk. And as we're walking up this hill where my sister's house was, out of nowhere, my dad just goes, please forgive me. I go, for what? He goes, everything. I go, what do you mean? Todd, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have to come to me, to bring two or three others, to tell it to a church, to bring a letter to me begging me to return to turn me over to Satan. I can't imagine what it was like and all the heartache that's come for the last 18 or 19 years. Forgive me. I heard Don knots in the back of my head, trust the process. <laughs> I think the last two or three years of my dad's life were the best. There's still more I wish he would have done, don't get me wrong. But he started moving in a great direction. Why? Because he dealt with this. See, that's the hope of church discipline is restoration. To sit across from my dad after wishing I could have had almost 20 years of just eating my time together, right? Like seeking out my dad, trusting him to make decisions in my life. And I'm so thankful. I look around this room and there's older men that are in this room that were in some ways played my dad. That's why I love the church so stinking much. <sighs> but the day he said, forgive me, I just envisioned the father just falling on my dad, kissing his neck, hugging him, kill the fatted calf because my son has returned. And I got two years with my dad before he passed away. It's a process, but why? Not just restoration to me, but restoration to the father. Restoration to be the man or woman that God has called you to be. 
to actually care about people enough to go after them and cry out to them and call them back and call them to live in the way in which Jesus calls us to live. And so especially for those of you in here that are not followers of Jesus, this might seem in some ways so strange to you, but what I'm talking about is, is don't you want a place that's trying to eliminate hypocrisy, trying to eliminate gossip, trying to eliminate all these other things that the world tends to do to deal with problems and just deal with it in a way that brings honor to God, openness, transparency in front of all people so that you might live in a group of people as you were intended to live. That's the church. We haven't always done our job well, but that's the church. This police that cares about you like you're a lost treasure that will go after you and love you and care for you. And by the grace of God, that's who I hope Cornerstone not only has been, is, but will continue to be. We haven't been perfect. But the reason we're going after all this stuff with being disciples who make disciples, the reason we're talking about being in this pathway of Jesus and following him is because my heart for Cornerstone is we would be that church more and more and more and more, that we might be a light to our community while everything else out there is backbiting, while everything else out there is manipulating, while everything else out there is just icky, that this will be the place of wholeness, this would be the place of safety, this would be the place in which you can truly become the person that God intends you to be. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would call you to come before him as a child to bend your knee to that great king, but to understand you aren't just anybody. If you come to know Jesus Christ, you're a son and daughter of the king most high, and he cares about you. And in Philippians 1, 6, it says, he won't quit working on you until the day of Christ Jesus because you are a treasure. And so today's the day to come like a kid and bend the knee. But can I just share you a few things before you go confront? Some takeaways. The first one is this. If you've seen the brother or sister that is straying, you're the chosen. Go. Don't come talk to me. Don't come talk to other elders. Don't come talk to anybody. I am now, by the authority vested in me, because of the word of God... You're not going out as the sin patrol, by the way. You're going out as a brotherhood and a sisterhood of people that look at other people that God has rescued by the blood of his son and you're treating them as the treasure that they are. All right? That's the first thing. Thank you. Amen over there. You might see things incorrectly. Now, what do I mean by that? One of the things that is so good about this process is you also, Matthew 7, 5, need to learn to remove the log from your eye. Before you go confront people, deal with the log in your eye before you deal with the speck that's inside of their eye. Deal with you on one end of it. The other part of it is you may see things incorrectly. Is your, has your brother or sister actually sinned? Or is it, and this is the way we came up with it in sermon prep, is it just an annoying quirk? You ever notice that, annoying quirks? Things that drive you up the wall, but they're not really sin. We don't confront people over that. We confront people over things that we have an actual biblical, clear principle to go with them on. 
The other thing that we do is we, if it's something like my dad where he was having affairs, that's one thing. But sometimes we don't know. And so we don't go with a statement. We go with a question. Brother, sister, it just seems like sin has got you. Man, can I talk to you about that? As we go talk to them, here's the next thing. Don Knotts would say, trust the process. Trust the process. The other thing is, off of it, is you must have the right authority. We're doing it in his name, not my name, not anybody else's name. We're doing this because this is what Jesus has called us to do. We do it with a posture of prayer. That's the whole point of verse 19. We ask and we ask and we ask, Lord, help us to see this. But the other thing that's so hard is we forgive if there's restoration, which we'll talk about next week. I remember after forgiving my dad and we kind of came back, probably about like a month or two later, I was just in the bathroom. I was getting ready to go in the morning and I remembered all the things my dad has done, all the chaos that had happened because of his sin and I was so angry at him. But I had to remind myself, he's forgiven. It's not on him, it's on me. And here's the last thing. You must create reminders. Now, what do I mean by that? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul had been dealing with a group of people that were in sin. And if the worship team's here, you can go ahead and come on up. This group of people was dealing with it, and, and in it, Paul writes them a letter. And he said this about taking the Lord's Supper together. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Now he's going to go on and explain it. First, look at this, let a person examine himself. In other words, first deal with the log that's inside of my eye. Then you eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks, look at this, without discerning the body, the rest of the group of people out there, eats and drinks judgment on yourself. In other words, you may not know this, but the Lord's Supper is this incredible opportunity to deal with sin in our group, holiness. So what I want to do today is I want to put up in front of you these questions, all right? And I want everybody to look at them. I'm going to have the band play for just a little bit. Before we take the Lord's Supper, for you personally... Is there anyone that I am not right with? In other words, is there anyone I need to go restore relationship with? Is our broken relationship because I've sinned against them or they've sinned against me? And if so, and you know it, either go and ask for forgiveness or if they've sinned against you, go to them before you take the Lord's Supper. That's what it means to discern the body and to examine myself. Number two, am I or do I know a brother or sister in Christ that is in this room right now that's in habitual, ongoing sin, then go to them. Now you understand, not sin police. That's not what we are. We're not like a secret group of people that sniff out sins in people's lives. But we care about people. Before we take this table, we first look at ourselves and then we look at other people and so take this opportunity. That's what the early church did is to go to one another and ask for forgiveness, to, to confront in love and to call people to repentance. But I'm going to give you probably about two or three minutes and just to examine yourself. Is there anything that I need to deal with before I 
take the Lord's Supper in this way? Is there anyone I need to go talk to that I've offended? Is there anyone that's offended me? Is there anyone that I know that's in sin that I need to go talk to? So the next two to three minutes, they're all yours.